0: Manifest Destiny. Hi, welcome to Escaping Society, episode 34. I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And this is, as I said, episode 34, Van Buren through Buchanan, U.S. Presidents Exposed, 1837 through 1861. Um... So, first of all, this is another awkward intro, and hopefully the rest of them will go smoother, but we actually had a super long episode of the first 15 presidents. We thought we'd break them into three parts. It just didn't work for all kinds of reasons other than being super long. Then we couldn't move it over to anchor or carrier for uh, these podcasts, and um, it just kind of fell apart. (laughs) So we were scared that all that work was just going to be for naught, but luckily I managed to salvage it and split it into two parts, but there's going to be some bumpy edits so, uh, after this intro, when we get into the, the content, the middle part of this, you'll hear probably a strange shift. Um, this has been the most difficult, complex podcast we've ever done, and uh, it's been a very interesting ride um, <laughs> for so many reasons, but... The amount of effort we're putting into this to try to learn, I mean, it was ambitious right from the get-go when we uh, thought three months ago, like, wow, let's do one on U.S. presidents. So let's tell the story of America, um, starting with the first president and walk through every president and what that says about the country, you know, like how we react to this president, what the president did. Um, and I can't say that I've been able to tell the story the way I intended, the way I wanted to, but it's taken on its own life. And, um, yeah, I just hope we're putting something out there that is educational, that you maybe learn some stuff you didn't know before, and if you did know it, maybe you know that there's at least two more people out there that also know it, and are like <laughs> thinking that's pretty screwed up, um, and it has just <laughs> been so difficult, so anything you want to add to that?
1: I just want to add that this was the second part, which you're about to listen to, of I think a three and a half hour long go of talking about the president so if we sound a little tired or we get a little tongue twisted please forgive us Um, like Gumby said in the future we're going to be making these podcasts on less presidents at a time so that way we won't be (laughs) sitting there for almost four hours
0: yeah and we're going to do one more um, on the presidents for this season I believe that's Lincoln through uh... I don't remember Yeah, I don't remember. Oh, Cleveland. Um, And hopefully that'll be smoother. We're learning a lot about how we need to tell this story. Um, And then this is going to be a six-part series now. We think that's how much we need to break this up to tell what we want to tell. So the other three episodes will be next season. Um, So, yeah, we started with the framers. Um, We talked about the first seven presidents, which are, you know, those framers we keep hearing about. What the framers intended.
1: And the founders.
0: The founders. So we called into question who these people are, what their intentions were, and if those intentions should even be honored or carried out, and what the hell it says about our senators now that they, knowing these facts, these historical facts, I can't believe that we're the only people that know it. They've got to know most of this stuff, and they still talk about it as if it's a sacred biblical text, what the framers intended. Like Um, the
1: framers were some holier-than-thou gods.
0: Yeah. They weren't. I think we really need to question, and hopefully these podcasts will help you start questioning, do we want to bring to life what the framers intended? Um, And now for Van Buren through Buchanan, I feel like this is the next eight presidents, and now we're carrying on with this manifest destiny. As we fight to spread these American values and this American vision, From sea to shining sea. And beyond. And beyond. (laughs) And um, I don't think it's an accident that that uh, ambition leads us to the Civil War, which is right where uh, Buchanan takes us, right to the edge of the Civil War. Two weeks after his presidency, the Civil War, also known as Buchanan's War, breaks out. Um, Let's see. What's going on in our current events? Well, for one thing, um, we finally got done with the whole 30 diet. It was a whole 27 diet for me. Um, I just decided I've learned what I wanted to learn from it and another three days wasn't going to make a difference and you're supposed to slowly reintroduce stuff. But, uh, I guess I quickly reintroduced beer, pizza, cheese, pretty much everything. Yeah. And chocolate. So, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting, but, uh, I think what we really need to do to eat better is just discipline. <laughs> yeah,
1: and it's a really expensive diet if you're uh, if you're not able to scavenge foods that are specifically allowed for that diet. So um, I think we're both looking forward to getting back to scrounging and scavenging and um, not contributing to the monster.
0: Mm-hmm. And as we said, the Trump impeachment is going on, and uh, I guess they voted for impeachment. And what is it? The House of
1: House of Representatives.
0: The House of Repre- Representatives. And now it goes to the Senate. Is that yes. the way it works? So um, usually we record these nine days before we release them. So by the time you hear this, who knows what will be going on in the news? But you know, I've been listening to as much of this as I can on NPR, just trying to catch in what I can. And um, <laughs> the whole. Trump witch hunt, which, you know, a lot of people say that that are Trump supporters, like it's a witch hunt, like he's a great president. No, he's not a great president, but none of them are. So I'm just against the whole targeting any president as if he's the bad guy, as if it was going great before him. Um, You know, I want to start encouraging people to question the underlying system. What does it take to be a president? How do you rise through the ranks of this kind of system where you're even even running for this office? Corruption. Yeah, it's uh <laughs> so we're exploring that and um and like I said, the whole, like, what the framers intended is a phrase that keeps coming up. And I'm hearing all these freaking senators taking turns, these blowhards talking about, I came over from a poor background, and my mother was a waitress, and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, I guess this, if there's anything else, Teresa? Um, I don't have anything else. Okay, so that's it for our intro. So get ready for a bumpy ride, because we're about to cut over to the edited middle right now.
1: The next guy is Martin Van Buren. He was actually the only president to speak English as a second language, his first language being Dutch. Like 25 other presidents, he was a lawyer. Um, he was from New York, from a wealthy family of patroons who held land on uh, what's considered a Dutch manor. And he had one slave named Tom who I'm not exactly sure what happened. He supposedly tried to sell him, but the guy didn't agree to the terms, so then he's just like, eh, you can just go. But at any rate, he came from a wealthy background. Now, these patroons I'll talk about in a little bit, they had these ribbon farms or plots of land that were manors. And, Gumby, how do you say that word again? Fife? Fifedom. Fifedom. So these were, like carryovers from olden times olden. in the, uh, in the old country where you would have indentured servants working for you. So that's, that's the type of family and background that Martin Van Buren came from. <clears throat> he actually rose to power in New York by creating something called the Albany Regency. It was one of the first political machines, um, and it controlled the New York state government between 1822 and 1838. It was originally called the Holy Alliance. And they received enthusiastic support, by the way, from a little group called Tammany Hall, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure we'll get into more later in the presidents. But uh,
0: Oh, the next podcast, Tammany Hall is going to play a big part.
1: Gangs in New York? Is that what the...
0: That's only part of it. They were one of the most corrupt political... Well, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get into that later.
1: So, corruption. I'm charging Martin Van Buren with corruption. Not only did he create his own political corruption machine in the Albany Regency, but he even accepted support from Tammany Hall, which was the most corrupt. <clears throat> so, he gained influence as a politician. And in 1831, there was this uh, this little thing that happened between wives of the politicians, It was led by, I believe her name is pronounced Floridae, Floridae Calhoun, wife of John C. Calhoun, and a few other women who socially ostracized the wife of the Secretary of War, John Eaton. What does this have to do with Van Buren? Well, he was the Secretary of State at the time, and he resigned his post because somehow it To him, it was like a great political strategy to resign his post in the midst of all this, uh, it was called the petticoat affair between the women ostracizing John Eaton and his wife. And by doing so, it set him up with the sympathies and support he needed to become the next president. So corruption. I also charged Martin Van Buren with class hierarchy, um, promoting class hierarchy during his administration. And this is where I get back to the uh, patroons involved in the anti-rent war of 1839. And this lasted from 1839 until 1845. It was a tenants revolt in upstate New York. It was also called the Helderberg War. These people declared their independence from the manor system run by patroons. These were basically tracts of land that vested the lord of the manor with legal and economic powers over the peasants. The peasants had to contribute via labor or by coin. Now, there was this guy, Stephen von Rensselaer Rensselaer III, who died, and he had let his tenants pay what they could or let their debt accumulate. But in his will, it instructed his heirs to collect all the debts from his tenants, who, of course, couldn't pay, and they couldn't secure a favorable payment schedule from the heirs, nor could they obtain relief from the courts because they were just considered trash. They were just peasants. So they revolted. Um, They held their first mass meeting of farmers on top of Helderberg Mountains, which is why it's also known as the Helderberg War, in Bern, New York, on July 4th, 1839. They issued their own Declaration of Independence that said, We will take up the ball of the revolution where our fathers stopped it and roll it to the final consummation of freedom and independence from the masses. In December 1839, these anti-renters repulsed a 500-man posse that was led by Albany County Sheriff and included the former governor of New York, as well as John Van Buren, son of Martin. The New York governor at the time, William, William Seward, threatened the rebels with 700 militiamen and obtained their surrender. But... The disguised calico Indians resisted tax collection and law enforcement, sometimes tarring and feathering their enemies. Later, John Van Buren, then sec- state attorney general, personally conducted the prosecution of these anti-renters and got into a fist fight with the leading defense counsel.
0: <laughs>
1: that's that's part of our history, and that's something that I mean I had never heard of that before, had you? Mm-mm. No, it's just all these people rising up time and time again. Like we looked at this list of civil unrest and year after year, there's just a rebellion, a revolt, an insurgency. Let's see. There was also the Honey War, another tax rebellion. Oh my goodness. So the Honey War was a bloodless territorial dispute in 1839 between the Ohio, um, excuse me, the Iowa Territory and Missouri. This was over a land dispute of about nine and a half miles into modern Iowa. Tax agents from Missouri were trying to collect in Iowa. Oh, by the way, these are now Davis and Van Buren counties in Iowa. The Iowa residents, allegedly carrying pitchforks, chased away the tax collectors. Why don't we do this now? Now we like go to tax offices and pay somebody to do our taxes so we can pay them.
0: Now we say, what is it, nothing is, like, the only things that are inevitable are death and taxes.
1: Yeah, death and taxes. Uh, legend has it that the tax collectors came back and chopped down three honeybee trees to collect honey for partial payment. One description of the Iowans was this, quote, In the ranks were to be found men armed with blunderbusses, flintlocks, and quaint old ancestral swords that had probably adorned the walls for many generations. One private carried a plow coulter over his shoulder by means of a log chain. Another, uh, this got me, another had an old-fashioned sausage stuffer for a weapon.
0: (laughs) I'd be scared.
1: While a third shouldered a sheet iron sword that was about six feet long. That's what I'm talking about. These people were saying no, and they were doing something about it. But at the same time, where is our president? Where is our government that's supposed to be representing the people? They're just sitting in their big fancy houses collecting taxes to pay for their wars to make more money. Indigenous murder is another crime that I charge Martin Van Buren with. In 1840, this is called the Council House Fight. It's uh, between the Republic of Texas and the Comanche. Now, during this time, there was a truce, And this was actually a, a coming together for a peace treaty. But the Texas delegates told the interpreter to relay to the Comanches that if they didn't return all of the prisoners that were in their uh, in their possession, that they that the Comanches there in that house, that council house, would be held hostage. Well, the translator was like, "Uh, do you really want me to say that to these Comanche that are known to be just fighting to the death uh, people? And the Texas delegates were like, yes, we want you to tell them that. So the translator told him, and then like quickly left the room. Well, uh, as expected, the Comanche tried to fight their way out of the building. Now, what's interesting, aside from the fact that this happened during a time of truce, was that there was a doctor that was treating the wounded. He had been sent by the Tsar of Russia to study the inhabitants of Texas. That's how interesting these people were to the world. They were like, what is going on in Texas? The doctor sent two heads as well as the bodies back to Russia, and he obtained these skeletons by boiling them and then dumping the resulting liquid into the San Antonio drinking supply, which I thought was pretty fitting. Mm-hmm. Um So, indigenous murders happening under the watch of Martin Van Buren. My final charge is with manifest destiny and colonization. There was this U.S. exploring expedition. Now, this had been going on since, I think, John Quincy Adams, but it just got around to getting funded under the Martin Van Buren administration. And not only... Did they fund expeditions to explore and survey the Pacific Ocean? But they also annexed land, and it's currently still being disputed by the Marshall Islands. Um, this expedition was supposedly important to science, particularly oceanography. And they they claimed they discovered Antarctica. Um during the expedition, armed conflict often happened between Pacific Islanders and the exploratory expedition. Dozens of natives were killed, oops, and a few Americans. Yay, Martin Van Buren, but it gets better, I'm sure. We'll get it right.
0: Well, actually, it does. Um, Actually, my next president is... William Henry Harrison Who assumed presidency in 1841 With Vice President John Tyler And he may be my favorite president I think he did the probably the least damage Of any president while he was in office
1: While in office Oh sorry
0: <laughs> You blew my g- <laughs> Alright so I'm charging William Henry Harrison With a human rights violation Ooh. I know so unusual among these guys In 1773, Harrison was the last president born as a British subject in the Thirteen Colonies. And he came from a wealthy slave-holding family. These are the kind of guys that uh, tend to rise to the top.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, He was pro-slavery and tried unsuccessfully to introduce slavery in Indiana. Let's see who in Indiana he became the governor of. Um, He had six children with a slave named Dilsia. So a little good old-fashioned slave raping because that's what we want in our leaders. Um, I also charge Harrison with indigenous rights violations. In 1794, the Battle of Fallen Timbers, Harrison served under General Mad Anthony Wayne against the Shawnee under the command of Blue Jacket. Um, In 1803 to 1809, as governor of Indiana, one of his primary duties was to obtain title to Indian lands for settlement, which was a requirement for statehood. For, so in other words, if Indiana wants to join the United States of America, you gotta take enough land from the Indians to qualify. Oh. He supervised 11 treaties, which got 60 million acres of land. Many of the South, including Black Hawk, who I mentioned earlier, were resentful, which is why many of the Indians sided with the British during the War of 1812. In 1809, in his last year as governor, He badgered and bribed some destitute Delaware and Miami and Potawatomi individuals to sign the Treaty of Fort Wayne, trading land in what is now southern Indiana in return for annual annuities. Tecumseh condemned the action. He called it crooked. In 1810, after being a governor, he resumed his military career as general. Harrison met with Tecumseh at Vicennes, along with delegates of allied Shawnee, Kickapoo, Wyandot, Peoria, Ojibwa, Potawatomi, and Winnebago nations. Tecumseh happened to mention during the meeting that he was leaving for the south to bring the Muscogees, Choctaws, and Chickasaws into the alliance. Think about how many names I just mentioned. That was becoming a powerful resistance. Um, Tecumseh really saw the writing on the wall. And he was drawing people around him. He was becoming a huge threat to the United States' interests. Which, by the way, let me remind you, the interest only serves the rich. The poor people, as we keep telling you, are also rebelling at this time. They're not being served either. We're talking about the white people, black people, Indians. Nobody but the rich is benefiting from this way of of living. 1811, General Harrison led his army to defeat Indian the Indian forces in what they called Prophetstown under Tecumseh's brother Tenskwatawa who was known as the Prophet in the Battle of Tippecanoe. They dug up graves and mutilated corpses and actually suffered more casualties despite their superior numbers in that war. But it was considered a great success. So even though he had a lot more soldiers, actually more of those soldiers died in that battle. It tells you how hard, the, how, how hard these Indians were fighting. Oh, my third charge against Harrison is abuse of power. Uh, no. In 1828, Harrison was appointed Minister Planipotentiary to Grand Colombia. Afraid that Simone Bolivar was about to become a military dictator, Harrison tried to encourage democracy. Bolivar wrote that the U.S., quote, seems destined by Providence to plague America with torments in the name of freedom, end quote. And that sentiment achieved fame in South America. Um, I charge him with abuse of power because he had no business trying to encourage democracy when it was obviously working so well in America in another country. Um, and finally, no, not finally. I've got a couple more. One more. Uh, the next one is dishonesty and manipulation. So I charge Harrison with dishonesty and manipulation for 1840, his campaign for presidency. This allowed the, laid the foundation for modern campaigning methods. So you know all that crap you see in those commercials during election time? This is where it started, where they try to start manipulating you with little catchy phrases and bullcrap. They try to entertain you and make you like them instead of just, you know, letting you decide for yourself. So, um... When his opponent, Van Buren, stated that Harrison was more at home in a cabin drinking a jug of hard cider than being president, Mm -hmm. the Harrison campaign seized the opportunity to portray the actually wealthy Harrison as a regular, relatable working guy. They made flags depicting a cabin and a jug of cider, kind of saying, Oh, yeah, I'm one of you guys. I like drinking my hard cider after a hard day's work and hanging out in my little cabin. And they sold cabin-shaped bottles of cider to appeal <laughs> to the common man, who oh, apparently they assumed was too stupid to know that they were being played. And unfortunately, so often the common man is too stupid to realize this. Mm. Harrison called his opponent Van Ruin. And, uh, oh. you know, I can just see them in this room like Pff, Van Buren. Buren, more like Van, Van Ruin. Ruin. <laughs> That's so lame. And my favorite... Van Buren's Democrats would ask voters what Harrison was spelled backwards. No, Sarah! (laughs) So this became the ridiculousness of the modern campaign, and this is my charge of dishonesty and manipulation to the American people. And finally, my last charge against Van Buren is hubris. Part of his campaign also was he was called Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. That's what people, you know, a catchy little slogan. Vote for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. So when he gained the presidency to show that he was still the steadfast hero of Tippecanoe, he braved a cold, wet day. He refused to wear a hat or an overcoat, and he declined to ride in the uh, traditional carriage of the president to carry him to deliver his inauguration speech. He rode on a horse to look like the war hero he wanted to portray himself as. When he rode to the ceremony, he delivered the longest inaugural speech in American history. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then he went into all the events and parties and everything, and because of this hubris, this pride, uh, Tippecanoe, he died 30 years, 30 days later from either pneumonia or typhoid. And that is why I say he's probably the president that did the least harm. He didn't have time to do much. <laughs> so those are my charges against Harrison.
1: My goodness. Well, what's interesting is the next president. Um, there was this had never happened before. Uh, president hadn't died in office so it was unprecedented when the news reached John Tyler a slave-owning lawyer from Virginia and he made his way to Washington um, as quickly as he could and he was thinking the whole way because he knew that there was going to be some sort of a challenge especially um, with Henry Clay of the Whig Party so he was going into a meeting where they were talking about William Henry Harrison's funeral arrangements. and there was a guy by the name of Daniel Webster who I think we'd talked about before. And he noticed that when William Harry, when William Henry Harrison made decisions, he made them by a majority vote. When he talked to Tyler about this, John Tyler said, I am the president and I shall be held responsible for my administration. I shall be pleased to avail myself of your counsel and advice, but I can never think I can never consent to being dictated to as to what I shall or shall not do. When you think otherwise, your resignations will be accepted. So, he basically just took the presidency. Now nobody really liked John Tyler. And he had an extreme disdain for the Whig party that he was a part of. He was the VP for William Henry Harrison, who had run on the Whig platform.
0: He was the last Whig, right? Or was he? Uh,
1: I think he was the second to last Whig. Oh. I might be wrong about that. But he begrudgingly accepted the, no- the nomination to get on the ballot. Um, but he he was actually called his accidentcy Because, again, no one had ever thought about What to do, and when they looked at the Constitution, and no one that had been there and the Constitutional Convention was still alive, so they kind of had to make it up as they went along. But John Tyler just seized that shit. Um, I'm not sure if you could consider that abuse of power, but I'm gonna go ahead and, and charge him with that. He also had a secret slush fund in which he employed a man by the name of Duff Green. So (laughs) Duff Green was this kind of weird old guy that was sent overseas to England.
0: I knew he was weird when you said Duff Green.
1: Duff Green. To be an American agent. He went to England and he proceeded to tell the English that their country was scheming for a a monopoly on all raw materials in the world. And as part of their plan he explained to the English. The English were destroying the cotton production in America, in the American South by stirring up abolitionists with fake moral arguments against slavery. Duff earned himself the nickname the Ambassador of Slavery. <laughs> Hot
0: damn.
1: And John Tyler ended up rewarding uh, Duff for his work with an appointment as the U.S. Consul to Texas, uh, Texas still being an independent country at that point. I kind of liken Duff Green, not, not exactly, but he seems kind of like a Rudy Giuliani of his time, kind of working for the president, kind of going out and about to, to gather information or to maybe stir things up. Um, so that was an interesting page in history that I had not heard of before. I also charged John Tyler with ineptitude. Um, he abhorred conflict and he tried to avoid it at all costs, but it didn't exactly work in his favor um there was one time when he had to vote on a bill for bankruptcy and this caused first he vetoed it a drunken brawl outside the house of representatives and then his second veto resulted in a fist fight inside the chambers um there was also the matter of door's rebellion which i think you you talked a little bit about right Doors Rebellion in Rhode Island?
0: I might have
1: well it's been a
0: whirlwind I couldn't uh, yeah yeah.
1: let me go back to the the first part of it so Doors Rebellion it was an attempt by the middle class residents in Rhode Island to force a broader democracy because there was a small rural elite that was in control of the government there Um, so there was a an uprising led by Thomas Wilson Door, and It was because Rhode Island was still using the 1663 Colonial Charter that required voters to own land as qualification to vote. These Dorrites led an unsuccessful attack on the arsenal in Providence, Rhode Island, on May 19, 1842. Dorr had a cannon, but it failed to fire. No one was hurt, and his army retreated. He fled to New York. But he returned in late June 1842 to reconvene the People's Convention against the elite. Now, Dorr had actually been chosen as governor along with another governor by the name of King. So there were two governors, and Governor King was refusing to recognize Dorr as a governor of Rhode Island. Do you have King's whole name? I do do somewhere. Yeah, I do somewhere.
0: But okay, I... I'll check with you later, because I've got a King, too. I wonder if it's the same guy.
1: Probably. They they keep popping up in history. Um, Governor King called the state militia, but Dora disbanded his forces. The Charterites, who were in favor of that 1663 Charter, were finally convinced, and they framed a new state constitution that allowed voting rights to any native-born adult male, regardless of race, except the Narragansett Indians, um, who could pay a poll tax of $1. But... Dorr was convicted of treason, even though 10 years later that same court found the original charter had improperly authorized a despotic, that means the power was in the hands of the few, non-Republican, un-American form of government. And John Tyler, I believe he he basically said like, well, I think it'll work itself out. He didn't even do anything about it. He just abhorred conflict that much. He was just like, well, I I could do something, but I think I'll just wait. It'll, it'll settle itself out. But there were more riots, whether they were based on race or slavery or um, the Irish and nativist movements. So there were the Cincinnati riots of 1841, which happened between blacks in Cincinnati versus the unemployed whites the Lombard Street riot in Philadelphia that were blacks versus the Irish immigrants there was a Muncie abolition riot in Pennsylvania and this was interesting because it showcased a little bit of what was going on in the quote-unquote North let me see if I can find this here this was interesting I mean they're all interesting So The Muncie abolition riot in Muncie, Pennsylvania, it began as an attack on a schoolhouse where an abolitionist speaker that was invited by local Quakers spoke against slavery. Pennsylvania began their process of banning slavery in 1780, but the new law stated that all people who were slaves in 1780 were to remain slaves until freed by their owner, and that the children of those slaves would remain slaves until age 28. This slow abolition lasted 67 years until 1847 when it was fully abolished. That just goes to show you that the Mason-Dixon line wasn't a moral and ethical line. I mean, there was shit going on all up and down the United States and to the West, which leads me to indigenous injustice. In 1843 there was the Battle of Bandera Pass, where hundreds of Comanches met with about 50 Texas Rangers. Now, you might think, well, what are the odds? But this is where the technology started to turn the tides in Indian Wars, because with only 50 Texas Rangers and their new repeating revolvers, they were able to kill off and defeat hundreds of Comanches. There was also the matter of this uh, assurance by John Tyler, to the indigenous people of Hawaii who sent a delegation on December 19th, 1842 to secure an assurance from Tyler of the recognition of Hawaiian independence. And I suppose we all know how that turned out. Mm -hmm. Cough. (coughs) 1898 annexation cough. (coughs) Mm -hmm. And like I said, there were so many other riots uh, within Tyler's presidency. I just feel whether you want to call it ineptitude or just injustice. He did not serve the people of this land. Not all of them.
0: <laughs> just the right people. Just
1: the right ones.
0: All right. So now we move on to our 11th president, James K. Polk, who took office in 1845 with George M. Dallas as his vice president. Now we have a uh, a true Democrat, We don't have a Democrat-Republican. The parties have now split. So now the party that really is the same damn party, now they can kind of run against each other and, like, pretend like they're very different. I have three charges against Polk. We'll start with human trafficking. In 1831, Polk inherited 20 slaves from his father and became an absentee cotton planter in Tennessee. What that means is he didn't want to actually have to go and, like, even see the plantation. He just wanted it to make money for him. Two years later, in 1833, Herbert Biles was the overseer in Tennessee, ran it for him. You know, kept the slaves in order. He was known for being fairly indulgent. When he became ill, though, he was replaced with Ephraim Beanland, who was known for cruelty. Poke liked Beanland and returned many runaway slaves to him. 1834 through 1835, Polk bought five more slaves rese- resenting, pff, representing most of a family except the father whom he so- sold to a slave trader as a chronic runaway. Apparently, this guy just you know, couldn't get on board and be a slave. Um, 1835, Polk sold his land in Tennessee and bought land in Mississippi. He concealed this fact from his slaves um, while he moved them there because Mississippi had such a bad reputation among the slaves, so he didn't tell them where he was sending them. Um, Polk's territorial expansion reached the Pacific coast and included the Republic of Texas, the Oregon Territory, um, and the Mexican cession from the Mexican-American War. Abolitionists like Thoreau, Whittier, and Lowell opposed the Mexican War, and they believed it was a plot to extend slavery and punish Mexico for outlawing slavery when it became independent from Spain. So here we have, you know, just these countries that have opposed slavery, and America not only is following suit, they want to punish these people. How dare you not play ball? You're making us look bad. In 1846, Polk bought seven slaves while he was president. This was unusual. Usually presidents didn't buy slaves because it was considered somewhat controversial. In 1847, next year, Polk Polk bought nine more. Well, then. Maybe it was like Sam Clubs, you know, Uh, there was like a, a deal or something
1: following Jefferson's uh, economic strategy
0: there. During Polk's presidency, he actually replaced the paid White House servants with slaves. Oh. In
1: 1848,
0: a year after that, France abolishes slavery. Damn, this is getting awkward. Now they don't oh. want to play ball? <laughs> God, are we the only people that treats people like property? Ah, oh, we're the
1: They think they're people.
0: But but we're we're still the free nation.
1: No. Really? Independence.
0: So, my second charge against Polk is indigenous rights violations. I know, I know, it's their job, but I'm talking ethics here, not laws made by the very corrupt bastards I'm putting on trial. So let's start with 1844. Polk's democratic platform as he was running was as an expansionist, both of slavery and manifest destiny. So this means he was planning on spreading through all indigenous territory. White people had the right to it. It was our destiny to fulfill it. Many of you who listen to this podcast, even if this sounds horrible to you, if you examine your beliefs, you believe this as well. If you can watch Star Trek and it doesn't like jar you, Star Trek is like uber manifest destiny. But I'll get into that in another podcast. He was a dark horse candidate, which means that they actually didn't want Polk to run, but they couldn't. the Electoral College couldn't get in um, alignment to get any of the other candidates to agree on them, so Polk was sort of a default candidate in a way. Um, the U.S. population had been doubling every 20 years, and it now reached a demographic on parity with Great Britain. Technological advances, thank you, George Washington, Mm. included expansion of railroads and increased use of the telegraph, and it contributed to a strong military power and stoked the expansionism of the U.S. By expansionism, we're talking about crushing the indigenous people under those wheels. Um, And finally, my third point in charging Polk with indigenous rights violations is... Polk and his administration saw the destruction of the buffalo. This is where they started killing off the buffalo, a whole species, as a method of war to stop the Plains Indians, who they could not stop in just open warfare. The the Indians had such a mastery of their landscape and their battle that even with this increasing technology, the U.S. Army kept failing. So let's kill their food supply. Remember General Matt Anthony? The precedent was already set with Washington and Matt Anthony. You want to stop somebody? Starve them. This was not an honorable way to fight war. The Indians uh, didn't understand this. They fought wars to show their tribe how brave they were, Mm -hmm. to take chances. The the whites fought wars to kill people off, to take land. Um, It also saw the beginning of the California gold rush, and the U.S. was now poised to be a world power. And finally, my last charge against Polk as being a crappy president is ineptitude. He did not serve the American people. In 1844, during his presidency, there came to be a group called the Know-Nothings, and there was a Know-Nothing riot in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Know-Nothings were anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. Anti-Catholic read Irish, Irish, Ireland, Irish. So in other words, they wanted to close the borders. Some of them even called themselves I don't know if it was actually the Know Nothing Group, but this movement of uh, against um immigrants, some of them even called themselves Native Americans. Ooh. These were white people that just felt like, ah, we've been here long enough, no more immigrants.
1: Oh, these were the Scot Irish. I suppose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The ones so, that had
1: been here, like, for a quote long time.
0: So I charge him with ineptitude for that reason because this obviously conveys that there are people under his care while he's in office that are not being served. Also, in 1849, there was the Astor Place riot in Manhattan. It was the deadliest number of civic disturbances which pitted nativist. Read the Native Americans, the white people who felt like they'd been here longer, against immigrants. So it wasn't just the know-nothings. This was a movement that was starting to really spread, um, especially around the North. Or both against the wealthy. So sometimes they would turn on the wealthy. Sometimes they'd get it right. The wealthy controlled the police and the militia, which is what they opposed. Um... 31 rioters were killed in this this Astor Place riot. 120 more were injured. It was the largest number of civilian casualties due to the military of the United States since the Revolutionary War. This led to increased police militarization, including riot control training and larger, heavier batons. This was the beginning of the police starting to militarize themselves against the citizens of their own country. This was the beginning of a police war Against the citizens that they should be serving. you, started, you ha, This is where you have to start questioning who the police actually are serving. It all started, <laughs> strangely, because of a dispute between an American actor named Edwin Forrest and an English actor named William Charles McCready on who is better at playing leading roles in Shakespeare plays. Now, how the hell that turned into that riot? I don't know, oh, but it's feel a, free to research Yeah, that. it's
1: a story. You should really look it up if you want to... Um... If you want a little bit of a taste of how history works, because I think that also involves Tammany Hall.
0: Yeah, a lot of it goes back to there, but I rest my case. (laughs) That's what I have against Polk.
1: Well, by the time the next election came around, I think people were ready for another war hero, because that's who they elected, Zachary Taylor. He was from a Kentucky slave-owning plantation family, and he killed engines, so it seemed like the, the proper choice. That
0: dog, he's the boy for us.
1: Yeah. Even um, Abraham Lincoln was a uh, enthusiastic supporter of this war hero, Zachary Taylor. Um, he Zachary Taylor led an army, and I, this is the name of it. He led the Army of Occupation. <laughs> I swear to God, that was the name of his army.
0: This was before political correctness.
1: Um, He was a war hero in the Mexican American War, as well as many other wars, including, I believe, the Battle of um, the War of 1812. I mean, he was just involved up and down uh, the United States in war. And being a career officer, he had never publicly talked about his political affiliations. And up until this nomination happened, he never, or supposedly, he never intended to be president. He never even voted before the 1848 election in which he became president. Um, So I guess you could charge him with ineptitude or maybe just wasn't wanting to be a politician. But either way, he became the 12th president.
0: So for those of you that tell us it's our civic duty to vote, well, at least one guy didn't and became president.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He, um, I also charge him with war crimes because of aforementioned army of occupation, war hero. Um, he even used bloodhounds in the second Seminole War to find the Indians that were hiding, um, and for that he was he was nicknamed Old Rough and Ready. So maybe he was ready to be president. Who knows? He was related to James Madison, by the way. Um, they shared Mayflower descendants, so it went that far back. Ah. And a fun fact, BFF, BFF, Zachary Taylor's daughter, Sarah, was briefly married to Jefferson Davis, who you may recognize his name from the Confederate States fame, Um, but she died like three months after she got married to him. Let's see. I also charge uh, Zachary Taylor with indigenous injustice and murder, even on his inauguration day which was, it, it fell on a Sunday, so they changed it to March 5th, 1849, Mormons slaughtered a band of Timpanogos Indians in the Battle Creek Massacre. And just to show that President Taylor himself uh, showed no love for the Indians, he enforced and signed the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians in 1850. And among other things, this allowed for slavery in the free state of California. Um, Allow me to expand on that. I wrote down the Act for the Government and Protection of Indians. So the state legislator of California um, enacted this, this law. It facilitated removing California Indians from their traditional lands, separating at least a generation of children and adults from their families languages and cultures from 1850 through 1865 and provided for apprenticing or indenturing Indian children and adults to whites and also punished vagrant Indians quote-unquote vagrant by quote-unquote hiring them out to the highest bidder at public auctions if the Indian could not provide sufficient bond or bail. This is just thinly veiled slavery. It was amended in 1860 to abolish involuntary servitude, but it was not repealed in its entirety until 1937. Dramatic pause. This implication, it this meant that there was legal slavery of Indians in California, which shortly was admitted as a free state. So fuck you, Zachary Taylor. Now... President Taylor was against the expansion of slavery into Western territories. I mean, except for the Indians because they weren't really people. But only because it didn't make sense. You see, he was from a plantation and he owned slaves. And he knew that you can't grow cotton and sugar, which are the main crops where you need slaves, in the poor soils of the Western territories. So to him, it just didn't make any sense to expand it out there. Money. Yeah. Yeah. And let's see, what else happened? Oh, there was the Bloody Island Massacre in California of about 60 Pomo indigenous uh, peoples. They were slaughtered by the U.S. Cavalry after they tried to rebel against their captors, which were white settlers. Um, yeah, so you suck, Mr. Taylor. And let's see, was there anything else I wanted to say? You had mentioned the Astor Place riot. I had that on my list just because of the date. But yeah, definitely check that out. Zachary Taylor died um, before his uh, before his time was up for being president. But in his first summer uh, as president, he had been all around the United States and its territories as they existed at that time. But there was one area, even though his descendants had come on the Mayflower, that he wasn't familiar with, and that was the northeastern part of the United States. Throughout this tour, he contracted diarrhea um, the whole time, and upon his return to Washington, shortly after that, he died of cholera morbus, which was a, a kind of a scientific way of saying diarrhea. Um, so he was literally. Full of shit. My apologies to anyone who has died from that. But definitely uh another shitty president. I yield back.
0: <laughs> order, order. <laughs> All right. Okay. My okay. next charge is lucky number 13, Fillmore. Uh Millard Fillmore, who took the presidency in 1850 and was indeed another Whig of the Whig Party. I
1: believe he was the last,
0: the last Whig. Um, interesting, Fillmore. Uh, What historians say is Polk, James K. Polk, was the last strong president before Lincoln. And Millard Fillmore is especially considered like kind of a spineless jellyfish, just a nothing president. And if you Google U.S. presidents, you'll see all these pictures of presidents come up. And for some reason, Millard Fillmore is the only blank. They've got his name and dates and no picture. I don't know what's up with that. I charge Millard Fillmore with... My first charge is human trafficking. In 1850, the first year of his presidency, the Compromise of 1850 allowed each state to decide if it permitted slavery or not and created a more stringent Fugitive Slave Act. Remember that thing Washington signed in? Well, he made it stricter, which Fillmore enthusiastically enforced. It became illegal to even give a runaway slave a glass of water. You could be arrested for that. Fillmore stated, God knows that I detest slavery, but it is an existing evil for which we are not responsible. Um, So he was really into states' rights, which in a way, you know, sounds kind of good, you know, like, well, you know, you guys figure out what's best for you, but when you have slavery on the table and things like that, and you're all like kind of in bed together profiting with it from it, um, not so good. Let's see. And that's my sole point to charge him with human trafficking. I also charge him with ineptitude. In 1851 during his presidency, we have the Christiana Christiana Riot or Resistance or Tragedy in Christiana, Pennsylvania, an armed resistance by free blacks and escaped slaves to a legal raid by the federal marshal at the house of William Parker, who himself was an escaped slave. The Fugitive Slave Act that Fillmore had just made more strict, had increased penalties for aiding escaped slaves. The resistors tried to prevent the recapture of four escaped slaves. They wouldn't let them go back into slavery. They fought. The slave owner was with the marshal, and he was killed by gunfire. Bam! Instant karma. It got him right in the face. So, 41 people, both black and white, were indicted for this. This was under Millard Millard Fillmore's watch and was a direct result (coughs) of his um, Fugitive Slave Act. In 1851, the same year, we have the San Francisco Vigilante Movement in California. In response to that population explosion due to the gold rush, um, which overwhelmed the authorities, it was a lawless place, and particularly the crime gang, the Sydney Ducks, who came from here from the, uh, the penal colonies of Australia. Um, a group of vigilantes formed that called themselves the Committee of Vigilance. They ended up hanging eight people at this time and forced several elected officials to resign. So it was just, he was not serving the people. The people had to form their own vigilante committees to just keep from being overwhelmed with crime.
1: And by the way, those <coughs> folks that went, uh, they, they came from the penal colonies um, in Australia. They were originally from Ireland and they had been driven out of their homeland by the potato famine. And they thought they'd... Uh, like try their luck at being laborers in Australia. And when they heard about the California gold rush, that's when they came to California.
0: And two years later, in 1853, we have a Cincinnati riot in Ohio. Man, those uh, folks in Cincinnati just can't calm the hell down. I wonder if anybody was smoking marijuana back then. Um, 500 liberal armed German men, followed by 100 German women, protested by marching on the home of visiting Bishop Gaetano Badini, whom they identified with their reactionary opponents. This was back from the old world, a blasting grudge. One protester was killed, and more than 60 were arrested. Also in 1854, the no, we have a know-nothing riot in St. Louis, Missouri. Again, anti-immigrant. Um, and let's see. All right. That is my charge against Fillmore for ineptitude, for failure to do his job. I also charge him with abuse of power. In 1853, President Fillmore and Secretary of State Daniel Webster dispatched Commodore Matthew C. Perry to open up trade with Japan, who prohibited nearly all foreign contact. So Japan was basically saying, we don't want what's happening out there in the world to come. We're doing fine. We are a closed island. We like it that way. And so um, Fillmore and Secretary of State Daniel Webster Send the ship just to screw with Japan Open up trade you got to trade with us We want your money We want you to, to buy stuff we, we, you got to play ball And we want to be the first ones there I call that an abuse of power They already knew Japan didn't want to trade So why mess with them? Let's see Moving on to my next charge Indigenous rights violations Consulting my notes Fillmore signed dozens of treaties with Indians, including 13 with Oregon tribes, several Chinook and Talamook bands. It was a continuation of the forced removal policy. So in other words, he was getting them off the land. Um, After his presidency, he often made appearances at railroad openings and the expansion they supported. So the railroads spreading across America were a direct uh, conflict with the last tribes that were holding on to their ancestral lands. And uh, Millard Fillmore was a big um, supporter of them. I call these indigenous rights violations. More treaties, more removal, treaties that were not honored. And finally, I charge Millard Fillmore with treason. In 1855, the Know Nothings had another riot in, you guessed it, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Louisville, Kentucky in 1856. There was another Know Nothing riot in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, why do I charge Millard Fillmore with uh, treason? Because at this point, Millard Fillmore had joined the Know Nothing party. <laughs> so the party he had joined, this group, was rioting in against the laws of these areas. They were riots against immigrants who legally were allowed to be there. This is treason, outright treason. Was the man impeached? No. Your turn.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, we need a unifier. And is that what we got with the 14th president, Franklin Pierce? (laughs) Gumby, you are ridiculous. I'm hungry. (laughs) Franklin Pierce was a Northern Democrat, a lawyer from New Hampshire, who saw the abolitionist movement as a fundamental threat to the unity of the nation. Oh, he sounds like he sounds like the guy for the job already. Um, he was considered a dough face, like, like you're kneading face. the dough of the bread. Um, I guess that term came about because uh, dough face it could be like a mask. So he was hiding uh, as a, a northern Democrat, but a southern sympathizer with regard to slavery. He was also in a a war, the Mexican-American War. He was a brigadier general, and he was a fucking disaster. Hmm. So first, he gets on his horse, and his horse moves in a certain way that hurts his groin. Hmm. And then, like, he tries to get out of that situation, and he hurts his knee. And then he's like, well, I'm just going to suck it up and go into battle. But he passes out because of the pain in his knee. And then he spends the remainder of the battle for Mexico City in his tent with diarrhea. Wow. Again, I have the presidents that are full of shit. Literally. Well, they're all full of shit, so I guess it's no surprise. He was another dark horse candidate, meaning that he was an unknown, just like Polk. And his campaign slogan, by the way, was, Franklin Pierce's, was, We will pierce our enemies. In 1852, as we polked them in 1844. Eh? He's
0: smart. Let's follow him.
1: Huh? It's a good one, right? Well, Pierce's wife hated politics. She was um, probably chronically depressed. And when she found out that he was nominated for the presidency to, to be in the election, she fainted. <laughs> um, but that was, that was the least of it. On his way... To becoming, like, on his way to Washington, he and his family were involved in a train accident. And it killed his son. It crushed him and nearly decapitated the body. And he couldn't hide this from his wife. Who was already, like, a disaster mess. So he began his presidency in mourning. Not long after that, his vice president, William R. King, died. So this is just going great. Um, I don't blame him so much for those tragedies, but maybe his wife did. Um, I do charge him with ineptitude against his, or for his stance against slavery, or I mean for slavery. That was confusing. I charge him with ineptitude on his stance for slavery. He also nominated Jefferson Davis as his secretary of war. And he was the first president to have a full-time bodyguard because he was attacked by a hard-boiled egg.
0: Now, when you got to have bodyguards against your own people, you got to wonder what the hell your job is.
1: Yeah. Um, as far as indigenous injustices— Wait,
0: you said a hard-boiled egg? Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs>
1: As far as indigenous injustices, um, Jefferson Davis, now his Secretary of War, believed in expansion, and, he, and Jefferson Davis, under President Pierce, advocated for the Gadsden Purchase, again kicking Indians out of their of their land and moving settlers in. This resulted in several massacres, including the Shule massacre in 1854 of approximately 65 Tulowa people near del norte county um, california also the asbill massacre of about 40 yuki people in round valley and the battle of ash hollow and i think i have something about that somewhere too apologies oh my gosh I have to look this up that was in nebraska between the u.s army and the brulee lakota Nearly half the casualties in that battle were women and children, although by now we're used to hearing that. I mean, it's just become normalized. Like, we kill Indians, we don't care. Um, oh, by the way, Pierce also signed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Now, let me get this information because it's technical. Let's see if
0: I can find it here. Meanwhile, let me entertain you with... uh, What do you call a dog with no legs? Uh, Anything you want. He ain't coming. Oh,
1: boy. All right, let's see. What do you call a cow with no
0: legs? Ground beef. Oh,
1: God. Okay.
0: What do you call a cow with two legs? Lean beef.
1: All right, so I believe... um, And I I might be wrong about this, but the Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, I believe it had to deal with the uh, states either being free states or slave states. I can't find it for the life of me.
0: What do you call a cow that's just given birth? are not helping. Decaffeinated. That was a good oh, one, though.
1: Oh, that was good. I'm sorry I'm not laughing more. Um, shoot. Of course it's my last president. Okay, so he signed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and he enforced the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, which we've heard a lot about, so you can imagine this is just a continuation and it gets worse. These acts brought about a series of armed conflicts now known as Bleeding Kansas. These were violent civil confrontations over the legality of slavery in Kansas between the pro-slavery border ruffians and the anti-slavery free staters. The Kansas-Nebraska Act called for, oh, here it is, called for the issue of slavery to be resolved by popular sovereignty. Each citizen has sovereignty over themselves and can delegate a portion of their sovereign powers and duties to those who wish to serve as officers of the state, contingent on officers agreeing to serve according to the will of the people. So that's what popular sovereignty is. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act um, allowing for the decision about slavery to be made by the territory's settlers rather than outsiders and by popular vote. This led to introducing John Brown. You'll hear this name a lot. But he showed up first in May 24th of 1856. John Brown led his sons and other followers to plan the murder of settlers who spoke in favor of slavery. That night, they seized five pro-slavery men and hacked them to death with broadswords. Brown and his men escaped, and they began plotting a full-scale slave insurrection at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Now, The Republican senator at the time of of Massachusetts took to the floor of the United States Senate to denounce the threat of slavery in Kansas, and he accused Democrats in support of slavery in Kansas of lying in bed with, quote, the harlot of slavery. He had devoted enormous energies to the destruction of what Republicans called, quote, the slave power, the efforts of slave owners to take control of the federal government. In this guy's speech, Republican Senator Charles Sumner, he called the crimes against Kansas. uh, He likened them. Oh, boy, I'm I'm messing this up. In his speech, the crimes against Kansas, he ridiculed the honor of the elderly South Carolina senator, Andrew Butler, whose pro-slavery agenda towards Kansas was likened with the raping of a virgin and characterizing his affections for it in sexual and revolting terms. The next day... Butler's cousin, the one that was being uh, talked shit about, he approached the South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks and nearly killed Sumner on the Senate floor with a heavy cane. So that's what this guy who was supposed to be maybe the next unifier, Franklin Pierce, this is the type of government that he's over. Not necessarily directly over, but as the president, I mean, he's in charge. All right, I'll leave the rest uh, for you to look up on your own. But Bleeding Kansas, John Brown. Franklin Pierce also supported something called the gag rule on slave or anti-slave legislation. And that just meant if anything reached his desk talking about uh, like uh, ending slavery, he just ignored it. So I would call that a human rights violation. Also, he was inept with uh, regard to class hierarchy. Now, again, not a unifier. There was a protest on Election Day in 1855 in Kentucky called Bloody Monday, where the Protestant nativist mob attacked German and Irish Catholic neighborhoods. The Know Nothing Riot in Baltimore of 1856. The Detroit brothel riots, where ethnic Germans attacked brothels that were catering to blacks. The Cincinnati riots of 1853 and 1855, where nativists, Germans and Catholics uh, revolted against each other. Pierce was also known as a heavy drinker. In fact, he died years later after his presidency of cirrhosis of the liver. But I thought it was uh, ironic that during his presidency, there was both the Portland rum riot and the lager beer riot. And both of these were geared towards, um, they were again thinly veiled attacks at Irish immigrants. Um, the Portland Rum Riot, they were the mayor was trying to have prohibition in Portland, Maine. And in the Lager Beer Riot, the uh, I believe it was the mayor of the town decided to close taverns on Sundays, and that was a meeting place for many of the Irish immigrants. It was part of their culture, and so they they believed that was a direct attack on them. My last charge with Franklin Pierce is. Expansion, occupation, and the um, continuation of manifest destiny. He actually tried to wrest Cuba away from Spain, um, believing that that would be an asset, especially for the Southern states, because at that point in time, I believe Cuba was still uh, holding slaves. He also was—he uh, signed the Guano Acts uh which the guano island acts which allowed any american citizen if they found guano like shit deposits on an island to claim it for the united states and that would further allow the president to have jurisdiction over said lands there were also atolls and islands um, that were annexed during his presidency and among all of this turmoil is it any wonder that Henry David Thoreau felt compelled to escape into the woods and publish Walden in
0: 1854. <laughs> I'm dead. And that brings us to our last president of this um, episode, the 15th president, Dun-da-da-da. James Buchanan, who gained his presidency in 1857 with John C. Breckinridge as his vice president. Now, Something that is not I'm not charging him with, but I find interesting about Buchanan is he's a Democrat, which that's not very interesting. But, you know, bleeding heart Democrat. uh, You know, one thing that we really love is when there's a minority that gains presidency. You know, we've had a black president. We're anticipating eagerly the first woman president. Some people say we're not ready for a homosexual president yet. Some people, you know, don't say that. Um, but anyway, often we think like that is really shows how great America is, this nation of immigrants. We embrace diversity, <laughs> you know, and... Uh,
1: as long as you're like us.
0: So this is interesting because we may have already had a homosexual president. James Buchanan is the only president who remained a bachelor for his whole life. He was suspected of homosexuality for many reasons, one being that he had a very close friend named William Rufus King. He died before he became president. Um, all the gossip around Washington was that these guys were gay. Um, Andrew Jackson even called King Miss Nancy. They had a lot of derogatory nicknames Reed. for this guy. Now I find it remarkable that, despite you know this picture of Buchanan, that he did become a president, the highest office in the land, and uh, you know him being of a minority group somehow didn't save him from being any less of a wretched bastard. <laughs> so let's explore that, shall we? Oh, here we go. Okay, so I charge Buchanan with indigenous rights violations. Um, During his presidency in 1857, in his inaugural address, he commends the vast public lands for, quote, a hardy and independent race of honest and industrious citizens. End quote. And he goes on to say that, quote, No nation in the tide of time has ever been blessed with so rich and noble an inheritance as we enjoy in the public lands. We should never forget that it is our cardinal policy to reserve these lands as much as may be for actual settlers. End quote. Now, notice there's no comment about indigenous people there, that they've ever been there, that they still are there, or that they have any right to be there. (laughs) Um, At another time, Buchanan says, What, sir? Prevent the people from crossing the Rocky Mountains? You might just as well command the Niagara not to flow. We must fulfill our destiny, which is white rule over the entire planet. He didn't say the white rule over the entire planet, but it's implied. Might as well have. Yeah, he kind of did. Um, I also charge Buchanan with human rights. Well, actually, um, human trafficking. Whew, so in 1857, Buchanan supported the Dred Scott decision in Dred Scott versus Sanford. Mm. When Dred Scott claimed that he and his wife should be granted freedom because they lived in Illinois and Wisconsin territory for four years where slavery was illegal, And the laws of that territory said that slaveholders gave up their rights to slaves slaves, if the slaves stayed for an extended period in that territory. The Supreme Court decided that no one of African ancestry could claim U.S. citizenship, and it would improperly deprive Scott's owners of his legal property. This was supported by James Buchanan. He thought this was right. This is a good value. Um, Oh, and we have in 1861, um, Kansas was admitted to the union and Buchanan tried to admit Kansas as a slave state. And one more point for the indigenous rights uh, charges, Um, treaties and reservations were the Indian policies of a Buchanan's administration. Indian affairs was full of corrupt agents. There were many conflicts, continuing injustices towards Indians in Kansas, Utah, Nebraska, and elsewhere. Buchanan oversaw treaties, with, oversaw 11 treaties with Indian nations, none of which were honored, of course. Of course. Um, this was a time when the public attention, this was the dawn of the Civil War, and this left the doors wide open for these Indians who had signed treaties, who'd gone to the reservations, who'd been removed, and now, even after all that harsh treatment, Now more corruption poured in. People that were supposed to take care of their food, take care of their needs, they were stealing. The Indians were getting nowhere near enough. And so we also see a lot of rebellion on the plains, um, both from the people that had not been conquered yet and the people that had been conquered and said, screw this. We can't survive like this. You're forcing us to fight. These are indigenous rights violations and my human trafficking charge. I also charged Buchanan with ineptitude. Um, my notes are a mess. During his, I mean, the, the, the nation was just tearing itself apart. In 1857, we have the Panic of 1857, where 1,400 state banks and 5,000 businesses collapsed.
1: Oh, my God.
0: The South was mostly unscathed by this, but there were drastic increases of unemployment in the North, possibly due to over-speculation. In the same year, we have the Mountain Meadows Massacre in Utah, where a Mormon militia and a few southern Paiutes that they had enlisted to help them murdered the Baker-Fancher wagon train, who were mostly from Arkansas and were bound for California.
1: Oh, those crazy Mormons.
0: The Mormons wanted a more closed community and resented other white settlers. Um, It's unclear how much uh, Brigham Young was involved in this. Whites disguised themselves as Indians, but when they feared their identities might have been discovered, they lured the victims out under a flag of truce and then murdered everyone except 17 children, all under the age of seven, presumably because they didn't feel like they'd be credible witnesses. Then they burned the bodies to hide the evidence. Um, Buchanan granted them amnesty. So in other words, he let them off the hook if they just accept the authority of the U.S. government. In 1857, we have another know-nothing riot, this time right in Washington, D.C., and also in New York. In that same year, we have the New York police riots. I couldn't believe this when I read it. There was a battle between the recently dissolved New York Municipal Police and the newly formed Metropolitan Police over political corruption when Municipal Police tried to arrest Mayor Wood. The New York state militia had to intervene and 53 people were injured. So you had basically a gang war between two groups of cops. And one of them was saying, like, you know, the mayor was so corrupt that he was saying, oh, you guys aren't really cops anymore. Well, another politician is saying, arrest that man. He's corrupt. <laughs> At the same time, in New York, the gangs took advantage of the cops just being in such disarray that the Dead Rabbits riot happened. Oh. Um uh, At the same time as the New York police riots, a small-scale street fight between the Dead Rabbits and the Bowery Boy gangs escalated into a city-wide gang war of fighting, looting, and vandalism for two days that was also stopped by the New York militia. So first, the New York militia had to stop the police, and then they had to stop the gangs. Oh, my God. The next year, there were no-nothing riots in New Orleans, Louisiana, against, again, immigrants. Um, Same year, there's the San Luis Obispo Vigilante Committee in California. Remember that vigilante group in California? Now they've moved on to San Luis Obispo. The Committee of Vigilance hung six Californians and shot a local gang leader. Also, they were beginning to target black people more. It was becoming more of a racial thing. In 1859, here we have John Brown again. And here's the end of John Brown's story, his raid on Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Brown attempted to raid a U.S. arsenal and initiate an armed slave revolt. Harriet Tubman was supposed to join him, but she was prevented by illness, and Frederick Douglass was approached, but he declined, and he said it's a suicide mission. Twenty-two people, 13 of whom were white, five were black, attacked the armory. Buchanan had offered a $250 reward for Brown after the plan leaked. Some say as many as 80 people knew about it. Buchanan ordered Marines led by Robert E. Lee, who was called so hastily in that he was still wearing his civilian clothes to stop him. Lee captured Brown and said that he was insane. In Brown's last speech in court, Brown said, Had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, either father, mother, brother, sister, wife, or children, or any of that class, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right." and every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Then Brown was taken to be hanged. One of the spectators in the audience was John Wilkes Booth. We also have, in 1861, the Baltimore Riot, also called the Pratt Street Riots and the Street Massacre in Maryland. Conflict between anti-war Copperhead Democrats and Southern Confederate sympathizers against Massachusetts and Pennsylvania militias en route to Washington. It was the first deaths by a hostile action of the Civil War and is nicknamed First Bloodshed of the Civil War. Some assessments say this riot is what pushed both sides over the edge into full-scale war. So I'd say this is not a president who's taken care of the peace of his people. The country is ripping itself to shreds. Um, and I also charge Buchanan with corruption. So one of my points of corruption is that Fillmore signed dozens of treaty. Nope. Wrong president. Fillmore's already been condemned. <laughs> In 1860, the Covode Committee tried unsuccessfully to impeach Buchanan for alleged corruption, abuse of power, and attempts to bribe members of Congress.
1: Wait, so this isn't just us judging them?
0: No. Even well, the US government is getting sick of itself <laughs> by this point. Uh, Buchanan supporters accused John Covode, who led the committee, of a personal grudge over disputed land grants designed to benefit Covode's railroad company. Oh, boy. So we, here we have a corrupt politician and a corrupt businessman mm. at each other's throats with enough corruption to go around, I'm sure.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, in 2004, a biographer named Gene Baker writes... It is his betrayal of the National Trust Buchanan came closer to committing treason than any other president in American history. Though being in states no, though believing in states rights, um, Buchanan actually supported the North when the war broke out. Some blamed him so much for the Civil War that they called it Buchanan's War. Now, oh. whoever hears of this Buchanan, yeah. but he was so important back then that instead of the Civil War, they were calling it Buchanan's War.
1: That's fucking
0: crazy. This is a president who absolutely failed us. Um, it was the failure of all these presidencies that led us to the war of the, the the dawn of the Civil War and a final failure that pushed us right over the edge. All right, and that takes us to uh, Buchanan. One thing I wanted to address is uh, something that comes up is that these men were a product of their time, that um, it's a wrong way to look at them to judge them through the lens of our current values and the time we live in. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely a factor, like that needs to be taken into account, um, that a lot of us who are now against slavery might actually be slave owners back then. But on the same token, you know, couldn't we say the same for the people now? Like all the criticism against Trump might they not say a 100 years from now, oh, he's a product of their time. Everybody was into consumerism. Everybody was uh, very greedy back then. Um, so they might just let him off the hook in, w- in ways that you might not be comfortable letting our current politicians off the hook. And I think there's something to be said for that, too. For instance, when we talk about these presidents that are slave owners um, and that supported slavery, at that time, there was also a lot of abolitionists, people that for ethical reasons had decided um, they didn't agree with slavery, including... Uh, many countries, Spain and then England and then France, that abolished slavery before the people in America did. I think that says something. So um, I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem like we should completely let these guys off the hook, even though it is important to remember that they lived lived in a different time. Um, Not everybody supported um, invading the indigenous lands, including England, when we had the Revolutionary War. The American ambition was to go ahead and trespass, to grab your opportunity. Um, England was definitely doing it, but at a slower rate. So to see things through the lens of the time that it exists in is kind of a double-edged sword. Um, so for our listener right in, um, we've got Paul from Santa Cruz, California. Woo! And he writes, Enjoyed your podcast. Thanks for your example. I am among the sinners who can't break the gravitational pull of the system, though I've had glimpses of personal freedom in my adulthood, particularly a five-month stint of bumming around South America at age 38. Anyway, could you steer me to an episode or maybe think about doing an episode in which you discuss the healthcare care system and how, with your lifestyle, you navigate it? Are you so far below the poverty line that you receive free services? The only reason I'm a full-time wage slave is for the health insurance. Also, do you have a Patreon or some other um, channel through which people can support your podcast? Well, to answer your first part of your question, um, I don't know that we have enough to say about the healthcare system to fill up a whole podcast. I think I can do it right now, right here. It sucks. (laughs) It doesn't work. Um, As far as being below the poverty line, uh, yeah, I'd say we're below the poverty line. But um, there are services that are open to anybody. Like if you go to an emergency room, they generally will patch you up in a very haphazard way. If you have a more non-emergency illness, um, yeah, I don't have an easy answer for that. It, uh, you know, there's uh, free clinics and everything that I've gone to. And, um, they're for, not free. They're not free. They <laughs> end up getting you in the end. They end up telling you like, oh, it's free. And then they give you a bill. Um, it's, it's a very crooked screwed up system. Um, and that has been the weakest part of escaping society for me is like I can find ways to eat. I can find things to do for shelter. I can find all kinds of alternatives that don't support society. When it comes to health care, I'm always at a bit of a loss. I don't have a great answer for that. But I think part of it is as long as the society goes, we're all polluted. We're all full of illnesses, you know, just we're inundated with chemicals, um, whether we have healthcare or not. I'd say when you accept healthcare, care, also consider what you're supporting um, because not everybody is eligible for that health care. And think what would happen if we all decided we would not support health care until everyone could have that health care. It would change overnight, but it's because so many of us make the fearful choice to get health care that not everyone is entitled to that this system can stand um, because we are not uni- united because um, everything around us tells us to make the selfish choice, to look out for yourself, and hopefully somebody else is looking out for the other guy. Well, they're not. And I'd say another part of that that I found is to change your philosophy. I think we are conditioned to be very fearful of life, of death, of everything, and fear is part of what keeps us under control. I think we need to start working on a bigger picture. Um, we're going to die someday, and I think we need to focus more on the quality of our short lives than the quantity of it. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a leap I think when you turn away from healthcare and all the things that we're taught um, take care of you. That, that's debatable in themselves. But it's really looking at your philosophy and maybe making more friends with your death, um, being on friendlier terms with your death.
1: And I think you talked a little bit about this in Herbalism Unplugged, parts one and two. So if you're interested, um, check those podcasts out if you haven't already.
0: Yeah, those are the closest I think we've come to the philosophy of, uh, you know, being with your health and everything. I'd say just try to lead a very healthy life. And, uh, you know, Gandhi told doctors, both doctors and lawyers, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, quit your job and find something more important to do, better for the world than those jobs. He saw doctors as enablers that just kind of patched us up and kept us living unhealthy lifestyles instead of changing the lifestyle that breeds the illness in the first place. So consider that. And, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's about all I've got to say on that. I don't really have a a good answer for that.
1: I say get outside. Get outside. Get some sunshine here and there. Maybe if you can, sit down on the ground, and I'm going to be a hippie and say hug a tree.
0: Yeah, and I'd say meditate or however you can quiet your mind and really start dissecting that sense of self. You are bigger than you've been taught to believe, and what you've been taught to fear, this death of yourself, isn't the death I believe that um, we've been taught to think it is. You're gonna continue, you know. When these, we think of these uh, indigenous warriors that fight for their people and, and rush out, you know, and give their lives, you know, to almost certain death um, against incredible odds. These are people who loved their lives. That for the most part they were healthy, you know. They were out living outside. They weren't eating chemicals. They were eating good, wholesome food. They were getting exercise underneath the sun and the wind. Um, but they recognized there was a bigger sense of self. I think we are the most, a people of the most contracted sense of self that has maybe ever existed. And because we feel so impoverished in this sense of self, this isolated, short life, we're scared to death and we cling to it like people drowning. And I think that that is a lie. Um, And as far as the second part of your question, if we had some way to support us, God, I wish. We keep trying to figure out this button, this donate button. Um, we don't want to pressure people into giving money, um, especially if there's people as poor, of, as poor as us out there. Those are probably the people that need to hear some of our podcasts the most to help them out. Um, but people that do have money and want to contribute to our cause, man, we are struggling to figure out a way to make that possible. Because that would be awesome if uh, we did get donations now and then for all this research we're doing. Um Yeah, you got anything to add to that? I know Teresa has done the bulk of this research. She's kind of our our technical department between us.
1: And that's really sad because I am not a technical person. Um, Yeah, if anybody has any input on a uh, PayPal button, I can get it on the website, but it's kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's what I want to do. So, yeah, we appreciate um, if you want to support us in that way, um, and we'll try to get something Going here in the near future.
0: Yeah, just to, uh, if anything, to buy some like high quality beer to help keep me sane and uh, <laughs> help keep Teresa alive. Um, it would be wonderful. So thank you, Paul. Those were great questions, and I uh, really appreciate you writing in. Indeed. Um, let's see. If you have any questions or comments, um, please come to our website, be as in Buchanan.com <laughs> And visit our Facebook page, found at Escaping Society. And please give us a review. So uh, I guess that's it for us until next week when we do our final presidential podcast of this season. Um, anything else, Teresa? Uh,
1: thank you for listening, as always.
0: Yep. Bye.